Hi guys, welcome back to IPV and me. Had to take a little bit of a hiatus there for the last few weeks, so sorry there was a delay on the episode this time around. As you all know, October was Domestic Abuse Awareness Month and I was really, really happy to be invited to a photography exhibit, which was held by Safe Horizon and it was called The Things We Carry. So Safe Horizon are a wonderful organization. They helped me out so much eight years ago when I left my abuser. I would truly have been lost without them. So Safe Horizon is uh, formerly known as the Victim Services Agency. It is the largest victim services nonprofit organization in the United States. It provides social services for victims of abuse and violent crime. Operate at 57 locations throughout the five boroughs of New York City, which is a lot. Um, It's super impressive. So the Things We Carry exhibit, it visually explores what survivors are able to bring with them as they start their journey toward healing. A survivor who fled a trafficking situation with just $15 on them or the toy cars a child was holding upon entering a safe horizon shelter. The Things We Carry features the work of critically acclaimed photographer Kelly Marshall and stylist Philippa Bracewaite. It was really emotional for me to be there. I really felt like I had come full circle, especially the fact that it is eight years ago. Um, It was eight years ago that actual week that I was at the exhibit that I actually first made contact with Safe Horizon. Um, So my own The Things We Carry items uh, was a small bag with some personal items and my important documents such as my passport and visa information. There was actually a piece at the exhibit which really resonated with me. It was a small Ziploc bag of a woman's shredded documents which her abuser had shredded up before she left and she had that on her. I was also able to speak with a lovely young lady who works for Safe Horizon and I was able to tell her my story and she was really sweet, really encouraging. And also just want to give a shout out to my lovely friend Olga uh, who came with me. It was really great to have her there. Having support like that is really, really important. Um, So just want to thank her for that. Um, So today's episode is a little different. I actually... Originally had recorded this episode back in March and due to several different things going on on the day, um, we just had to redo it. So I am really excited to say that I have my first guest on the podcast. Super exciting. And that guest is my little sister, Tamara. So I was really happy to have her on. Uh, like I said, we were supposed to do this. We actually did record a little bit uh, back in March. We just had to scrap that. And uh, yeah, it was really great to chat with her on here. I will give a warning. Uh, we had a lot of sound issues throughout. Uh, so ended up having to just record her on a FaceTime call. So it's it may be a little bit irritating. Uh, the, the sound on her part won't be as clear and like there's a lot of times where you'll probably hear me kind of talking over her and you're not able to hear what she's saying because I obviously have the mic and she doesn't so it's a little bit annoying but um I hope you enjoy it regardless and the story that I'm telling uh I'll mention more later as the episode goes on but I felt it was a really great example of how it takes more than one attempt to leave an abuser how it can take years to leave and also 
the type of power that an abuser has over their victim and particularly in this case because it is someone who is in the public eye so yeah I hope you enjoy the episode I hope you enjoy having uh, a second voice on here it was really nice to not just have me be speaking all the time somebody was answering me back um and also like I've said before if you are interested in appearing on the show I would love to have you um so reach out and contact me I'm still uh getting my email set up but you can always contact me on my social medias which are linked in the bio so without further ado let's get on with this week's episode So, introducing the one and only, my baby sister, Miss Tamara Goggin. <laughs> Hello. Hello. Thank you for me. Uh, well, again, kind of. Again, kind of. Uh, we were just talking about the fact that we recorded this originally. We recorded the intro originally in yeah. March of this year. Ran out of time. Because it was super, super late because we were on different time zones. You're in Australia, I'm in, in New York. Why did I have to think about that? Am I in New York? Where am I? I am in New York. NYC. Yeah, all I can see out here is a tree and my crazy neighbor's house next door. Yeah, so we're... I, do, I still don't know two years later what the time difference is. But it is now 20 past 10 on Sunday night. And where and what time are it you in? It is 2.20pm on Monday. Okay, so yeah, so I'm confused. You're confused. It's fine. I'm probably more confused <laughs> than you are. <laughs> Anyways, um, so tell us a little bit about yourself and what you're doing in Australasia. Australasia? <laughs> Australasia, going so, old school. Yeah. So obviously youngest sibling, youngest sibling energy. Um, and yeah, I've been in Australia Spoiled. for two years in Melbourne. Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah, it's been really good. Finally feeling settled here and everything. And it's been really nice. And obviously I've had a trip home just last June. So yes. it was really nice to get I was also everything. there. Yeah, I think yeah. it kind of makes it, yeah, it makes it feel nicer even um, going home after you've been away for a long period of time. Oh my God, it's so exciting. It's really actually nice. so exciting. It's so exciting. And yeah just even obviously seeing everyone but just landing and being like oh i'm in dublin That's yeah it's the crazy. best it's the best like i still feel like that and it's 11 and a half years later and i go home to ireland now maybe two or three times a year and i still get that excited but like there's nothing like that first time when you go home like it was what a year and a few months for you year and like yeah, a year and a half nearly was it and, half, and yeah. it was i think it was three or three and a half years for me it was almost four years i'd say actually it was four years i think no it was definitely a really long time because yeah. i had visited you before you, you had yeah you and mom had come to see me and i and even that was like i'd been living here a couple of years at that point like um yeah, so yeah but it's so exciting to go home when you're when you've been away, it's so exciting, even though you've lived there for, like, your whole entire life, but, you know. I know, and even though now, like, I'm going back home again with you in, like, 
late June, early July. Uh-huh. But even though it's like really close together, I still feel like I feel like I'm almost more excited this time. I don't know why. Yeah, I, I think, think maybe because I've got the kind of edge yeah. There's less pressure on you to see everybody and like all of that stuff. Yeah. And also like because you had like brought your boyfriend home who none of us had ever met. So like that was obviously a huge um you know part of it then as well and like obviously his parents came too so it was like you know everyone wanted to meet him and like you know it was all that kind of stuff and then you're trying to see you you kind of feel like you're being pulled in all these directions but then like after you've been home that first time you kind of it's just more chill and like people are still excited to see you but it's a little less kind of like you know rush rush and I have to do this and I have to go there and like all that kind of stuff um yeah no for sure like I feel like it's gonna be much more relaxed this time and I'm going home on my own Uh um or maybe with me we're hoping that's what I was getting to maybe with me so I'm, I'm hoping Last time I flew through uh, Qatar, which was actually amazing, flew with Qatar Airlines, they were incredible. Mm-hmm. Um, but this time I'm going to try and go through New York so that we can line up and fly back together. Yeah, um, that'd so be so really fun. Good. I've never, like, apart from the very first time when I came here, that first flight, I've never flown to New York or home from New York with anybody. I'm always by myself, which yeah. to be honest, I love, but like, I'm always like, oh it'd be so nice to have a travel buddy and like I could get I know, not just get like double Malibus by myself at the airport <laughs> I know while FaceTiming me while FaceTiming me yeah I feel like I've had a good mix like I've done New York flights on my own I flew to mm-hmm. Australia on my own and lots of like work flights in yeah. between but flying on your own is so fun though other people also so it's been yeah. yeah I've had a good mix I think yeah 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 um but yeah so excited love trip i'm probably gonna go go home in between that as well because i feel like i well it has been ages it was like june the last time no it was may the last time we were there and i got injured um so i was in pain the whole time i was there and i feel like i haven't seen our nephews in about three years even though one of them is only a year old but like every time i see pictures of them i'm like why are they grown men like why are they grown-ups i don't get it so it's when they have that first haircut and then you're like oh my god like ned now so ned is the uh one-year-old he's like he's over a year old now but like he got his like first and did you see he got he's walking now and he got his first pair of shoes and i'm like you're a grown man like he looks like a grown-up i I don't like it and like we have cousin to meet that we still haven't met yet um, yes. So yeah, there's a whole lot. There's a whole lot we gotta do. Yeah, there's another. Time, so. Oh my god, there's another one. It's so funny because it used to be like our dad's side of the family. There's like ten million of us. Like always, there's always been so many of us. Cause like he had eight brothers and sisters. They all had about nine kids each. So like there's always been those. But then on mom's side of the family, like I was the oldest. Then our brother, yes, and then it was like. And then we had another cousin. So there was three of us around the same age. And then there was like nobody for years. Like it was literally like 10 years. And then we had another cousin. And then there was a burst. And now it's like they're all having kids. It's yeah, crazy. So now there's like loads of us. Like that side of the family has gotten so much bigger, which is wild. It's funny. I mean, even with siblings, like you were there for 12 years before I was. I know, yeah. Just, uh me and then so it like it's even weird thinking I was an only child for three years and then our brother came along and then there was like eight years later and then you just popped out of nowhere like oh hi 
am. <laughs> yeah. So, uh, yeah, it's me. Hi. But, um, but that's funny though. Um, but I think that's good. I, I like, I always say that, um, I'm glad it happened that way because, um, like having a brother three years younger was great because like he literally used to just listen to whatever I told him and like he still kind of does to be honest and then like with you I feel like because I'm very like you know how I am you're kind of the same too like I like my things how I like them and whatever and like you know lots of people are like oh I wish I had a sister so we could like share clothes or whatever and like you know blah 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 I think we would like hate that we would actually hate it. Like, we do, like, say, when you come here and, like, when I'm in Ireland, like, you know, it might be like, oh, can yeah, I just wear that jacket? It's cold or whatever. But, like, we never kind of, like, I'm going to wear your whole entire outfit. Like, we just don't do that. Like, we have very different style, yeah. We do have different style, but we also like the same things, but we just have very... Like, you would put outfits together in a different way that I will kind of thing. Mm-hmm. big readers and obsessed with reading but yeah. we read completely different genres yeah oh and totally yeah in any means but totally yes, yeah it's interesting i feel like we've got that in every aspect yeah it's but like right. it's funny because there's nothing that we really kind of are like oh i can't believe you like that like what's wrong with you like we still are very like oh yeah i, I get why you like there's no there's no big thing where it's like you know no. like i think that like say now for example if you were like you know Amanda I have bad news I'm a Swifty I'd be like bitch like we're not sisters anymore um that's how much I don't like her um but like you know you're like oh I'm what are what are they what's an Ariana Grande Arianator Arianator except well okay this is a controversy there's a lot of names okay and apparently she never really claimed that one Mm -hmm. so we love. We have lots of different names. Mm-hmm. I think the first one was Tiny Elephants. You know. Tiny Elephants. Yeah, for real. And then it, it kind of just became this thing where we can't agree on what it is. Interesting. I think Arianator yeah. is the only one that I've ever heard. Yeah, there's like Ari's Army. There's been like mm, Ari's Army been a makes lot. sense. Yeah, yeah. Arianator is the one that stuck though. Yeah. Sure. But yeah, I feel like we don't it's have. Um, yeah, like there's things that we'll have like that we're not into at both into but like we're not like horrified that the other one is into that and you're not into it kind of thing yeah you know social interest i think yeah i think though like we always say i kind of you know there being 12 years between us i i was able to mold you from a young age into this like you're going to like you're going to like horror movies asking someone about a movie or something and they're Mm -hmm. like what is that? And I'm like, that's iconic. You haven't seen yeah. that. And I'm like, Amanda showed me that when I was four. Yeah. Like that time when I, uh, my old job, and I wore my um, The Last Boys movie t-shirt and someone was like, oh, is that a band? And I was like, what? Excuse me? Yeah. Um, stuff like that. Here. I remember yeah. um, TJ babysitting me when I was like five and he mm-hmm. put on to entertain me House of Wax. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Fun times. So, I was, yeah, I was, I was definitely getting shown yeah. some stuff from the get-go. 
Yeah, it's like that. I was chatting to a girl from work as well recently. So she is 19. Like, I'm literally old enough to be her parent. And she was saying, like, she has a sister that's, like, much older than her. So, like, she's watched all the, like, 90s sitcoms and, like, all the movies. So she knows all these things that, like, I talk about. Like, she knows it. Whereas, like, if I mention it to someone else, they're like, oh, i never seen... It's like those people... You know how, like, this generation of people, like, they don't like Friends? Oh, Friends is not funny and it's kind of... And I'm like... You don't like friends you don't like friends and i'm like i think it's just specific to like an era of like you grew up with it or you didn't grow up with it it's like that kind yeah. of like thing you know um and you can't yeah you can't negate what somebody does and does not like yeah totally except for taylor swift y'all are terrible i don't get it but whatever <laughs> oh my god you're really coming for her today. i don't like her hopefully none of the people who listen to taylor swift are people who listen to my podcast um i feel like that's not the vibe i give out anyway (laughs) please don't stop listening to me (laughs) uh i'm a nice person i swear where's my views gone (laughs) yeah sorry i'm more of a i know they 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 try to compare them all the time and like i know you it doesn't really have to be a you like one or the other but like i'm just beyonce till i die i'm sorry (laughs) <laughs> with a sprinkling of some old school Ariana um, thrown in the mix um, yeah I mean I've dragged you to see Ariana with me twice now yeah yeah it was it was a fun time though but now we just don't even talk about it yeah about it. we just can't even talk about it we had that second time we're oh, looking yeah. down into the elevator we can see her before she came off yeah. The car for seven rings, it was iconic. Yes. If anyone's ever been to Barclays Centre, like, you have no bad seats in that whole place. Like, I don't know how they have it set up in such a way, but, like, the you seats are always sure. so good there. The, the only... still terrify me when I first walk in. I'm like, oh, oh, yeah. This is so high up. What is happening? Yeah. It's so far, though. That's my only issue. It's in Brooklyn. Like, everything that happens always happens in Brooklyn. And I'm always like... Like I'll, I'll, people invite me to like parties or shows they're in whatever, and I'm like, where is it? Knowing it's going to be Brooklyn, and they say Brooklyn, and I'm like, I can't go. It's Brooklyn. <laughs> Matthew Perry quote: "Oh, the subway all the way to Brooklyn. Brooklyn is far. Brooklyn is far. Oh, R.I.P. Matthew Perry." Um, yeah, so upsetting. I'm still, um, I think I'm still in shock a week later. And it's so funny because we were literally on FaceTime having us a great old time chatting away. And then you're like, Amanda, Matthew Perry just died. And I was like, what are you saying to me right now? Yeah, Yeah. I'm still upset. Yeah, definitely the most. I think a celebrity death has ever affected anybody yeah. before. So many people have touched on it in podcasts recently, but it, it's really true. No, I think just like that character as well that he played. And I know people kind of only seem to be talking about his role in Friends. And like, obviously that was such a huge thing. And that's why most people um, know him. Although shout out to the movie Fools Rush In with Sama Hayek. I adore that movie that he was in. Have you seen that before? I have. Oh my god, I, one of my favourite movies growing up, like, I was obsessed. Like, he's in so many other, like, really great things, but I think just the, the character of Chandler is, like, people, so many people kind of see themselves in him. Like, he's nerdy, he's, like, not great with women, he's, like, you know, the sarcastic, can I interest you in a sarcastic comment? Um, Like, those, you know, uncomfortable situations, so I have to make a joke kind of thing. Like, so many people, like, relate to him, I think. Yeah, um, 
And like, if you think about friends without like the Chandler character, it's just like, there's no show there. Like he kind of just brings, no, I feel he no brings the jokes together so much and kind of, um, he just, uh, he just like, no one could deliver um, a line like, like Matt Perry, I feel like. Um, and I read his book last year, which is like one of my favorite memoirs that I've ever read. I'm, it's I'm a, number one on Amazon last year. Yes, it's a really, really great book. And like, it's so kind of, he was so like honest, like brutally honest about his struggles with like alcohol and drugs and like, you know, how, um, you know, his commitment issues and like um, how, you know, he deals with different things and how it's affected him and how like, you know, parts of friends that like he doesn't remember, he wasn't able to enjoy them because he was just like a mess. And, um, you know, he was like super honest about it. You know, I feel like a lot of celebrity memoirs, like even when they are talking about things like that, that they've gone through, like they still are sugarcoating it, but like he really wasn't you know sugarcoating it and like he was really proud of the fact that he like got through that and you know managed to go on and like help so many people and he opened um it's like the Matthew Perry Center it's like something like that um like for you know to rehabilitate people um which is obviously really really great um but yeah but I still think I I don't think I'm um I don't think it's sunk in yet like I just can't even believe that he's like not around it's like so strange I know. it is it yeah is. And it's, yeah i think it's gonna take a long time before it actually really yeah because for us like, like friends is like our whole entire existence like i mean yeah. we literally quote friends to each other on the daily like and that's like not even exaggerating like there's a friends quote for everything, for everything. like yeah for sure. um really and like it's just and our it's just, i don't know he's been in our homes for so many yeah. years and like the one thing i hear everyone say which like we've always said for years is if you're anytime I was sad and on mm-hmm. FaceTime to you or telling you anything you'd be like okay go to bed put friends, friends. on mm-hmm. and you know have some tea and it yeah. really does make everything better. it really does yeah it really really does and like even you know I love that show so much that like you know you watch that final seed of the final episode which I honestly don't think I'm ever going to be able to watch again because knowing that he has the last line in that I don't think I'm I think I'm just going to be like depressed but like I would like turn it off and be all sad and then just be like oh I can just literally put the first episode on again and I would always go back and put the first episode on again but I'm pretty sure didn't he have the first line in Friends as well when he's telling them about the dream in the first episode he's when they walk into Celtic dream. Park. Yeah, I'm pretty sure he does, actually. Or was it Monica? Because I know Monica's talking about her date. So it's one of the two of them I that remember. has the first line. I just read the story recently mm-hmm. that he told um, the director, like, oh, I really just... No one else wants it. Mm-hmm. Can I please have the last line? Yes. And nobody knew that he was going to say that. Where? Yes. Oh. Coffee? And you see, like, mm-hmm. Ross's face like the way he looks at him yeah oh, so sweet so cute oh r.i.p matthew perry we love you love you love you long time um but yeah so anything else you've been up to this week um basically just been reading books and going to work i think same yeah, that's literally been our whole lives same. For the past, i mean months not even week yeah <laughs> really basically yeah although i've been very slow this the last week for some reason I think it's just because I've been exhausted from work because it was like the lead up to Halloween at work was insane like there was so many people and I was literally exhausted so I just was like 
I've been like trying to either pick up something I can read in a day or not mm-hmm. read it all until Iron Flame comes out on Tuesday because yeah. I just I can't be in the middle of reading something when that book comes because yeah. I don't want to read it. Yeah. That's how I, I was. I need it in my soul. That's how I was when uh, Britney's book came out recently and I was like, I made sure that I ordered it on a day that it was going to arrive when I knew I was off the next day so I could literally just sit at home and read it for the entire day. <laughs> yeah, and I'm off, I'm off that day when it comes so yeah, I'm planning on just binging it because yeah. they're huge, they're like 700 page hardback books so oh yeah. Uh, even though I read the last one in like a week because I was consumed by it, like I could mm. not stop. Yeah, there's nothing better when you're just like reading a book like that and you can't stop turning the pages, but like you also have time to read it. Like you don't have to go anywhere, yeah. you don't have to be at work, like whatever it, just it is. Put me, it gives me such like a hollow when I finish and I'm like, I don't know what to do with my entire existence now. I know, you put it down, it's like, oh, it's like it's over. And then you kind of have to give yourself a bit of time. And then I'm always like, oh, but like, I have a whole entire library of books that now I get to pick from. You just immerse yourself so deeply into these worlds that yeah. you kind of get sad that that world's not real when you close that yeah, page. Yeah, it's so depressing. It's like, oh. It My thing is, why can't real life men be like the men in the books? Like, why? I mean, why? this is true. Like, so I will say, I do read a lot of dark romance. Those men should not be in the books. No, they definitely should not. <laughs> Oh, that is very true, actually. Or like the book that I read uh, recently where um, her love interest um, was a Satanist. That was so funny. <laughs> but he was lovely, though. He was lovely. He was just a Satanist. <laughs> I was like, I opened because I love, my thing is I love um, when people introduce book intros in a certain type of way. Like with fantasy books, they're always really good. Mm-hmm. But I opened this fantasy book the other day that I started reading and it was just for the women who see walking red flags as pink flags keep them in the books <laughs> <laughs> yes please do that and please do like, that uh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> and with that that is a perfect intro into uh my podcast episode about domestic abuse Woohoo! <laughs> gotta love it gotta love it gotta love it <laughs> Uh, so for those of you who don't know Carrie Katona, she was a, she started out as a, um, singer in a girl band called Atomic Kitten. I don't think they were known in the US, so if anyone is in the US, um, I feel like some people probably have, have heard of them here, but I don't think they were really, like, a known thing here. I think it was more like... UK, Europe, probably Asia. For some reason, um, pop bands like UK, Ireland pop bands are like huge in Asia. Um, what was that song that they had that was like the really iconic one again? Whole again. Yes. yes. Yes, that is that's the really one like, song like, I think that everybody. Yeah, I think that's the one song that everybody remembers. Um, by them. Uh, yeah, so that's like she's like she kind of just basically. I'll I'll get into it a little bit as we go on with the story, but. Uh, at this point, you know, when this story is taking place, like she's been established for like many, many, many years and she's kind of just a bit of a TV personality now. Like she's on reality shows, like she kind of doesn't really do music anymore, but, um, do music like she was in, you know, some like real serious band. Was she in the jungle? What? Was she in the jungle? 
Yeah, she did. She won it. She won the I'm a Celebrity, Get yeah, Me Out of Here. Another yeah. iconic show for my American friends. Um, although I do oh. think they did a uh, series or two of that here. I'm not 100% sure, but I think that they did. Um, yeah, that's good. so weird. Wasn't she in the jungle? <laughs> she was yeah then Tony that sounds normal for us but like for anyone that has never heard of that I'm show a I'm a celebrity get me out of here watch it it's hella good yes um, so anyways uh, Kerry Katona was born on the 6th of September in 1980 in Warrington Cheshire in the UK she was placed in the foster care system as a child and had several foster parents her mother, Sue, had bipolar disorder and issues with substance abuse. Kerry became a lap dancer at 16 after leaving school and posed topless for Page 3 and Zoo magazine. I don't know if, um, again, I don't. do you know what Page 3 is? Yes. Yeah, so Page 3 was like basically the Sun newspaper. The thir- It's literally Page 3 in the newspaper. They would always have a picture of just like a random topless girl like posed for a picture not just like you know paparazzi snapped on the beach or anything um and then zoo magazine was just like a playboy type magazine um as well uh so in 1998 she was part of the original lineup of girl group atomic kitten so um you were a year old when atomic kitten was formed uh which is crazy Uh, In 2001, Kerry left the group after getting unexpectedly pregnant by her partner, Brian McFadden, of Irish boy band Westlife, um, and apparently was in conflict with the other girls. Um, So over the years, as I said, Kerry starred in many reality TV shows. She's written several books, and she's been very open about her bipolar disorder and issues with drugs and alcohol um so obviously you were like a year old um when this was going on but like when her and Brian McFadden so like Westlife were like the biggest like boy band at the time and like Brian left the band years and years ago and um they have like continued as a foursome but uh when him and Kerry got together first like that was like they were like the prince and princess of like pop music like everybody was obsessed with them she was like this cutesy like girl next door type you know he was like the boy band the classic like couple of like you know the two pop stars together and then um everyone in Ireland was like upset she lived with him in Ireland everybody in Ireland was like obsessed with her and then they I think I don't know if they had had two kids at this point before they got married or if she had just had the one kid and then they got married had the other but basically on his so he had his like uh his stag night or his bachelor party for all the Americans listening and there was all these rumors that he cheated on her with a lap dancer that you know was at his bachelor party and um you know, she stayed with him at the time and then, like, the rumours kind of died down but, like, obviously that was true and, like, she found out later and um, so, I mean, I feel like that's not a great start to it but, like, honestly, that man was a piece of shit anyway. Like, he's not the the topic of the discussion today. Like, she's been... This was, like, many, many years before this happened. Um, This is all quite quite recent but, um, but, yeah, so she kind of, like, never had the best track record with men. Um, Her... 
husband after that uh his name is mark and he was uh basically her i don't know if you know if you know this much about her but he was basically her mother's drug dealer and that's how she met him and there was all this controversy because she went on like a tv show you know this morning with uh phil and i don't think holly was on at the time i think it was um fur in britain that was on it at the time and they interviewed her and she was like slurring her words and like she just didn't look good and she blamed on her bipolar medication and everyone was like oh she's obviously like clearly on drugs or whatever and then like this newspaper um like journalist was in her house and set up videos in her bathroom recording her without her permission obviously and there's like videos of her doing like lines of coke in the bathroom while her kids are in the house like it was just this whole controversy and then like you know she lost so many of obviously her deals and like all of that stuff so like she doesn't have the best track record with men a lot of that leads back to her childhood I'll obviously go through all of this anyway during the story but like this kind of a little like intro for anyone who is really that aware of her um because she's written other like like mostly I took this from her memoir but this is maybe like her third memoir so I haven't like you know gone through and read like her first two books I kind of just came in you know, because I just wanted to focus on this story and this book was particularly written about like this period in her life with this, uh, her third husband who was, um, who was really abusive. Um, and at this point she has like several, so she had two kids with her first husband, Brian. She had two kids um, with Mark, her second husband. And then she had one kid with this guy who we're about to talk about. So anyways, um, I shall get on with it, but that's just a little keeping you up to speed little thing exactly (laughs) so one evening while hiding in a wardrobe clutching her baby daughter dj kerry wondered how she had gotten here the answer to her was simple this is exactly the life she had expected for herself once upon a time she had been a singer in a popular girl band and married to the golden boy of pop while hanging out with celebrities such as mariah carey but she was never comfortable in that world because she knew it wasn't her All she knew before that life was pain and abandonment, abuse, drugs, alcohol, a mother who herself needed mothering. Now, a mother of five in her mid-thirties, she sat cowering in the wardrobe of a rented villa on a holiday with another abusive man, a man she loved so much. She she thought she only had herself to blame. She knew what she was doing when she started dating George Kay, a guy with a huge scar stretched across his stomach, a literal axe wound, which was the result of being stabbed in a fight. He wore it like a badge of honour. It was something that turned her on. She loved the idea of a bad boy, a sexy, dangerous, charismatic nutter who you know would protect you, whose violent outbursts you could pass off as passionate, who wanted you so badly no one else could have you or even speak to you. So Kerry and George met each other in 2012, although they already knew each other from around Warrington, their hometown. His nickname had been Gorgeous George. He was six foot four, had massive arms, even when he was young. He was an intimidating guy to look at, but if you ever spoke to him, you would see he was actually very shy. He had always made her laugh and she would see him out and about town over the years and say hello. In September 2012, while celebrating her 32nd birthday with her mum, Sue, Kerry went outside for a cigarette. George came walking up to her. He had a twinkle in his eye and he said he had just come back from holidays. Holidays being six years in jail. Okay, nice holiday. (laughs) Yeah, nice holiday. 
Um, he said at the time it was for fraud, but Kerry later found out it was actually for kidnapping and torture as well. He had even cut someone's toe off. Like, yeah. And he only got six okay. years. So Kerry, yeah. Meantime, Kerry says she was hooked. Knowing he had been in jail and was now on probation didn't bother her her at all. She spent her entire life around criminals and it turned her on. So to Kerry, this big brute of a man actually represented safety and protection. She immediately felt relaxed in his company and she wanted him to look after her. That's actually kind of like, I kind of understand that in terms of like, you know, if you've had men treat you like absolute shit basically all your life you've seen men treat your mom like shit and then like you have this huge man he's been in prison you know he's tough it's like I think sometimes people think like oh he can protect me like he can look after me um and like I remember one time uh it was actually my a girl that used to live in this apartment with me um who won't mention no names um, but she was telling me, you know, she'd been in an abusive relationship and she was telling me stuff about him. And then she said, like, you know, her next like boyfriend, she's like, I want him to be a cop or like something like that because I want him to like protect me. Yeah. Meantime, I was thinking, like, uh, I know a lot of stories about a lot of cops, um, one actually in my neighborhood um, who are anything but protective of the women that they are with. So it's like, it's definitely a massive red flag if that's like what you're going it after, is. you know? Yeah, I think people want the whole kind of story of he's bad to everyone else but me. Yes, I can change him. And it's like, oh, he's he's a bad boy, but he's good for me. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, exactly. Um, so he also made her laugh until her sides hurt. They ended up kissing all night. She was falling hard and fast. In fact, the next day they went on a date. She had to go away on a boot camp soon after and she realized she was sad to leave him. He called her every day and even went to visit her mom most days when she was gone. She now sees that as a sign of the possessiveness that was to come. She had no qualms about him meeting her kids. She knew she was in it for the long haul. He came to her house and basically never left. For her, it was love. She was on top of the world. The kids took to him straight away. He was playful and acted like a big kid around them. He was such a charmer and her whole family was under his spell. And that is all perfect examples of what we call love bombing. Um, it's very typical, like, to use words like charming, you know, under his spell, like, all of that. It's, like, everything is so perfect. And you think, like, oh, my God, like, finally, like, I have this perfect guy. And it's, like, yeah. mm, now, you know. get in with your parents. It's so interesting. Yes, it, it is. And they're always very typically, like, charming individuals. Like, they know how to turn on that charm. And a lot, a lot of times, like, people on the outside will just like love that oh he's a great person he did that for me and like oh isn't he so nice and like things like that like it's not just that person they're in the relationship that falls under their spell it's literally everybody around them uh so the first time he told her he loved her was after a wonderful holiday they had just come home from but he was a troubled guy and she knew that. He hadn't yet shown his violent side to her, but she knew there were demons there. She thought she would be the girl to banish them forever. Yeah. Which is all, again, very typical. Uh, so, yeah. <clears throat> exactly. 
George was a black man who had been adopted by a white couple and Kerry thought the uncertainty over his background was something that messed him up. He didn't discuss it much, but that feeling of not belonging was something that they both had in common. They were kindred spirits. The one thing she didn't realise from the off was that he was a drug addict. He had kept it from her. She knew he did steroids and thought he dabbled with recreational drugs occasionally. It certainly didn't warrant any worry from her. She only found out much later just how much rubbish he was putting into his body and the horrible effect it would have on his mind. Um, I don't know if you if you actually Google a picture of him and look at him, you will be like, okay. yeah, this man looks like he is on he is on steroids. Okay. Yeah, he he really I don't does. Look. I get the look. Yeah. Uh, so it didn't take long for George's dark dark side to show. Kerry had seen violence before. Her own mother had been with a very abusive man for a long time. Kerry's friends, Danielle and Sharon, were at her house and it was the first time she had introduced them to George. It was important to her that Danielle in particular liked him as she referred to her as her soulmate. Um, also, side note, the Danielle that she's referring to is Mel B from the Spice Girls' younger sister. Oh, wow. Yeah. Um, I always have to throw a Spice Girls reference in somewhere. <laughs> so Danielle and Kerry were joking about a guy who would ask Kerry out back when she was single and had kissed her like a washing machine. Is there anything worse? They were cracking up and she thought that George would also find it funny, but instead she saw his face change. A darkness descended upon him and it was chilling. The light went out in his eyes. He said he was going to bed. Danielle said, oops, someone's a bit jealous. Kerry's heart sank. She hadn't wanted to upset him, so she followed him. And once they were both in the bedroom, he turned and threw his phone right at her head in full force. She was stunned. The pain didn't even register as she was so shocked that he'd done that. She yelled, what the hell did you do that for? They started shouting at each other. Her eldest daughter, Molly, later told her she'd listened to it all and was very upset by it. She was barely a teenager and had never experienced anything like that before. Uh, so Kerry told George to get out of her house and to never come back. He left. Danielle ran to find her. She was just as shocked as Kerry was. Her head was throbbing and her heart was broken. She felt all kinds of confusion, panic, sadness and doubt. She didn't want George to be like the men her mother had been with. Some time went by and her mother called her. George had gone straight over to her place and she told her that he was really sorry and he loved her. So again, like he is... You know, he knew, like, I'm going to run straight to her mom, get her, manipulate her mom, and then get her mom to basically speak for me. Uh, So Kerry had seen all this kind of behavior before, and she had no doubt that it was a minor incident to her mother. Kerry said that she didn't want him back in the house. Sue insisted that he was sorry and was just having a bad day, that he loved her and was sobbing uncontrollably. Then Kerry herself wondered if she was overreacting, so she did what her mother said. Her love for George didn't disappear just because he'd harmed her, but knowing he was sorry seemed to make it all right. And her mother had fought his corner, which meant he still had her seal of approval. So he came back to the house and apologised again. His love felt like oxygen to her. Having this six foot four, hard as nails man with a criminal record sit down crying and begging for her forgiveness because he loved her so much was the most powerful thing to her. It was even a turn on. He had her hook, line and sinker and life went on as if the attack had never even happened. I think again, like that's such a kind of poor stereotype like that we kind of tend to put on men too is that like, you know, especially when they're built like 
you know really muscly and like they're this like hard guy and it's like oh look at him crying because he loves me so much you know it's kind of like firstly even just for a regular guy that's not abusive like I don't think that's really a fair thing to kind of like put on them or to kind of be like oh look at this little you know this big man and now he's crying because he loves me and like you know that kind of thing um but then obviously the fact that he's doing that as an abuser you know it's all just like manipulation tactics because like they really don't have any feelings whatsoever you know um so they had decided to move back up north by this by this time his temper had become far more noticeable he'd lash out but Carrie wasn't still wasn't particularly worried she still felt she could change him and that things would smooth themselves out she ignored the occasions he would become aggressive because the good outweighed the bad but as is usual in these cases things would get progressively worse They went to view a house and the landlord was showing them around. In the living room, there was a case of CDs and Kerry saw a Brian Adams one. So she began to tell them a story of how she'd been out for dinner with him and his wife and her ex-husband, Brian, when Brian Adams started telling her to eat her vegetables and ended up feeding her broccoli off of a fork. She jokingly said, that's my claim to fame. There was nothing sexual about it. It was joking around between two people who had just met and were getting along well in front of their spouses. But George clearly didn't see it that way. The atmosphere changed instantly. A shadow went across his face and his eyes blazed. They left the house quickly and as he drove off, he had one hand on the steering wheel and the other around Kerry's neck. He began strangling her. She could barely breathe and thought it was the end for her. He released his grip and pulled over, dragging her out of the car by her hair. She fell and hit her head on the door. He spat on her, got in the car and drove off, leaving her at the side of the road, breathless, scared and embarrassed. First of all, like whatever, I know like all of that is really bad. Like, but for me, like spitting on a person is literally the most disgusting thing you could ever do to anybody like even not to mind it like a stranger but like the person that you're actually in a relationship with and you're supposed to love and you're just gonna spit on I just think it's the most disgusting thing so it's meant to be like you know it's it's oh completely this kind of degradation thing that you can do I guess in a way absolutely completely um and again like the and it's very very typical in and I always say in all of these stories that I tell here on the podcast like one of the first like physical things that happens like aside from you know the physical like intimidation is like strangling it's always choking like always oh that always tends to be the very first like physical thing that happens and I think it's just such like a control thing like it's such a power move like to me that screams like more power than like just hitting someone or kicking someone is like to actually hold them literally yeah So, like, it's so crazy to me, too, and I say this all the time as well, is, like, the patterns are, like, all exactly... Like, the stories are completely different, but the patterns are all exactly the same. It's just so bizarre to me. Uh, So, Kerry managed to find her way to her mother's house, looking for some comfort and safety. She should have known that George would track her down. He stood outside the house, screaming and threatening to kick the door down, which he did. That was the first time Sue had seen what he was really like and Kerry thought it was the first time Sue had regretted persuading to take him back just a few weeks before. 
Sue was terrified. She hadn't seen that kind of behaviour since her own abusive ex had died. It must have brought back bad memories for her because she was truly shaken. She begged Kerry to call the police, but she said not to because George was on probation. But her reaction frightened Kerry. Um, and again, like, you know, him being on probation, like she knows it, this isn't just like a normal situation where you yeah. call the cops and it's like, you know, nothing really happens. Like he literally would have gone back to jail. But like, again, like she's still protecting him, even though he's like done all of that to her. And like, that's just kind of your you're just so under their control and under their spell that like your your normal like rational thoughts are just not the same, you know? Yeah, because you don't see anything else in that situation. Completely. Yeah. yeah completely like you're just immersed in it yes it's like your whole life and like your whole life is consumed by them because it's like the you know oh now they're you know the person I know and the person I love and we're having a great day and then like you're then consumed by oh he seems like he's in a bad mood today so now you're kind of on eggshells so like you're always just consumed by them and like their moods so Kerry knew that the only thing that would dissolve the situation was to quietly and obediently obediently go back to George she didn't want the drama of the police especially the press attention after everything she had been through with her ex Mark she was completely clean and had her life sorted at that point so it was the last thing she had needed she was in love with George every time he was violent she thought it would be the last she knew he had beaten women in the past and beaten up cops but she thought that she could be the one who could change him she thought his love for her would be stronger than his temper Years later, Sue would tell Kerry that she used to anticipate the police knocking on her door to tell her she'd been killed. Kerry had even sent pictures of her two black eyes to her mother and said if anything happened to her that this was why. The way George would fly off the handle about the most ridiculous things really scared Kerry. One night after kicking him out again, he had sneaked back in and watched her while she slept. How creepy is that? That's so creepy. That's some paranormal activity shit. Um, Another time... Give me a haunted house any day. Any day, any day. Not someone watching me while I see. I prefer if it's somebody woke me up and tried to kill me, not watching me when I was sleeping. Like, oh my god, so creepy. Yeah, so creepy. Going on like normal. Yeah, that's actually terrifying. Um, another time, he threatened to rape and kill her mother. So that is like that is messed yeah, up. Yeah, we're we're up there. Yes. Uh, So in late 2012, she started filming a show called The Big Reunion, where former pop bands reunited to perform for a series of shows. When I tell you, when this show was announced, uh, I was so excited. It was all my favorite boy bands growing up and my little pop bands. Like, I remember Five were on it, Atomic Kitten were on it, Bewitched were on it. Uh, A1 were on it like oh so many like these were all this is like my whole entire youth and they were reunite oh I was so excited because they did like a little you know it was a reality show of them like you know how because a lot of the band members like hadn't spoken to each other for years and they'd fallen out oh my god it was so great the drama because like growing up in the 90s like we didn't have any behind the scenes stuff really like you know you got your info from newspapers and magazines there was no like you know social media where it's like oh this person is not talking to that person like it was all so like sugar coated so oh my god I was living for it <laughs> 
So it should have been a career, yes, it should have been a career resurgence for her following years of bad press. She was really looking forward to it and it ended up being a big hit. Although she loved filming it, it also coincided with George getting really violent towards her. But you would never know watching her on the show. She was getting really good at hiding it. She was back with the Atomic Kitten girls, Tasha and Liz, and one of the bands, Blue, another fave of mine, who she knew well and were like her brothers. They were all hanging out, hanging out together dur- during filming and George was there too. It was becoming apparent at this point that George wanted to be involved in every aspect of her life, including her job. Kerry was having a laugh and playing the class clown, trying to entertain everyone. She sat on her friend Anthony's knee, all very innocent, but when George saw her, she knew she was in trouble. It wasn't immediate. He was always careful not to kick off in front of other people. And again, that's something that they always typically do. But back at their hotel that evening, he went absolutely mental. He screamed that she was a slag. He grabbed a fistful of her hair, which was cropped close to her head at the time. She could feel her scalp burning. He called her a disgusting slut and asked if she thought she could make a fool out of him. She was sobbing and begged him to stop as he was hurting her. He dragged her by the hair across the room and locked her in the bathroom as a punishment. She slept in the bathtub that night, cold and petrified. The next day, she had to go and film the show. It was her and the girls singing around a piano. She began to cry halfway through the song. In her head, she couldn't compute how she was there surrounded by production and fellow singers on this huge show playing the part of a pop star when the night before she was being dragged across the bathroom floor by her hair and made to sleep in a, bla- in a bath. It was a particularly low point for her. And that's again like what I think is so important about like this story and why I tell a lot of like celebrity stories on here is because like... You know, there's that stereotype of, like, it's only, like, weak women and, you know, people who, like, are, you know, don't have any power and they have they aren't strong-minded and whatever, like, and that, you know, it couldn't possibly happen to somebody. Yeah, like, it, it couldn't possibly happen to someone who is rich or is famous or, like... Um, so I think it's so important to kind of show that, like, it does not matter, like, who you are. Like, this can literally happen to anybody. So it still didn't cross her mind to leave. She didn't want to endure another breakup and people's opinions and the attention that would come with it. Yes, she was frightened of him, but she kept thinking it must just be a bad week. He's not really like this. The violence wasn't every day. The incidents were terrifying, but not regular. Most days he was still amazing and kind and charming and she would grasp onto that. He wasn't yet a full-time monster. So seven months into their relationship, George proposed on the top of Blackpool Tower. A small part of Kerry thought once she was married, the abuse would stop. And again, like you tell yourself every little thing like, oh, like once this little thing is gone through and once this little thing is gone through, then he'll be fine and then he'll be fine. And like, exactly, exactly. Yeah. And that's all very, very typical. Like you still like you still think this is not you can't accept it. Like that's just them as a person. Like you still think, oh, it's just you're blaming like outside factors. Uh, So the whole thing was really romantic and he'd even gotten the kids to be a part of it. In spite of everything, he was still the man who she wanted forever. Kerry's keenness to get married also stemmed from the fact that George's ex was back on the scene and the thought of losing him to her made her want him even more. Everyone fancied him and she loved the fact that he was hers and he absolutely played off of this. He thrived on it. He knew full well that she would be rushing things along while he made her believe that this woman was trying to get him back. The jealousy was unlike anything she ever felt before and he loved it. 
And then she fell pregnant. It had only been three months since the proposal, but both Kerry and George were over the moon. Shortly after they found out, George came home one day with the letter K tattooed behind his ear and Kerry reciprocated and got a matching G tattoo. George was desperate to have a boy as he thought girls were too much of a headache. Again, that's like massively red flaggy to me. I hate men that are like, so like, it has to be a boy. I want to have a boy. I want to have a boy. Like, I hate that like masculine, like... Say, like what like do you ever see on tiktok like those gender reveals and then the man is like so angry yeah. because like not even disappointed but like they're angry because it's a girl like it's exactly it's so messed up and such a red flag uh sadly george continued to be violent all throughout the pregnancy Normally, fathers are protective when their partner is pregnant, but George couldn't seem to control himself. He would push her over, kick her and spit in her face, but soon after, tell her he loved her, apologize, and gently let her know it was all her fault because she pushed his buttons. Then she would end up apologizing to him. At this point, Kerry now had no doubt that he was getting ever deeper into substance abuse. I can't even imagine, like thinking about there was actually this story the other day in um here in new york that uh these two women got into an argument over something on the train you know how it be and the one of them was pregnant and the other woman like kicked her in the stomach like how messed up is that especially like one woman to another i remember one time i probably told you this story before it was like years ago but um me and uh, my friend Paula, we were on the train home one night. It was kind of late. It was maybe like 10 o'clock or something like that. We we're on the subway home and uh, it was like pretty quiet too. Like, you know, there was like plenty of seats. Like it's that late, whatever. And across from us, there was this woman sitting down um, and she was obvious. She wasn't like super heavily pregnant, but it was pretty obvious that she was pregnant and this guy comes on and he's on the phone and he's like pretty young too and he's like crazy tall and like really strong and um he was for some reason he came and sat like right next to her and now he was he was very obviously like gay too and um so it wasn't like in, in a weird like sexual thing because like you know some creepy guys will do that um, and he came and he said, right, sat right next to her and like she was not afraid to tell him like what the F are you doing next to me whatever she said to him anyway so they were kind of doing a little tussle like back and forth um, and then it got to a point where they both stood up um, she called him the F word obviously slur for a gay person and then, which obviously, you know, she should not have done. They got into this huge argument. They're like, he started kind of pushing her and he literally went to kick her in the stomach. And then me and Paula literally both jumped out of our seats and just like tried to block him. Like we tried to just come between the two of them. And she was like, um, he called her like a lesbian or something. And she was like, well, obviously not. And she pointed at her stomach and that was before he kicked her. So he obviously knew that she was actually pregnant. I was just like, it was so shocking to me that like yeah. doing that to like a pregnant person, like was so shocking, but like, and that's just like complete strangers. So I can't even imagine like, this is your wife and she's pregnant with your child and like actually like. It's just so crazy to me, but yeah. I've seen some shit on these trains in New York, man. Oh my gosh, I could yeah, write a girl. book. 
Yup, let's not get let's not get into that. We'll be here all night. <laughs> so one day when Carrie was quite heavily pregnant, they had an electrician around to set up a TV bed that they had just bought. She was sitting on the side of the bed while the electrician worked. When George walked in, immediately she knew. The energy in the room changed. The electrician hurried out as George screamed at him to leave. He took Carrie by the throat and lifted her off her feet against the wardrobe. You think it's okay to be sat in our bed with another fucking man in my bedroom? He spat at her. She said he was just showing her how to work the new TV. Don't fucking lie to me, he screamed. How much saliva does this man have on the daily? What's that? How much saliva does this man keep on the daily? Like, what is this? He's constantly spitting at her. Uh, she begged him to stop as she couldn't breathe and to think of the baby that he could be hurting but he didn't care he continued to squeeze her neck before dropping her with a thud back to the floor she was crouched in the fetal position sobbing he spat at her again and walked out of the room despite incidents like this they were in a good place when their daughter DJ arrived in, on April the 4th <clears throat> 20 okay I I'm guessing that's 2014 I made a huge typo there and I said April 4th, 2004. 204, I should say, not 2004. <laughs> 204. I'm guessing it's 2014. <laughs> 2000 AD. Oh, I told you my laptop screen is broken. It'd be hard out here on the streets. <laughs> oh, please donate me some money so I can buy a laptop. Uh, Kerry was learning to accept that the violence was part of who George was. She really believed she could live with it. She still thought he'd changed now that his daughter was born. DJ was born. This is really interesting. DJ was born with six fingers on each hand, just as George had been when he was born. Oh. Isn't that wild? Yeah. I think that's so crazy. But seconds after, Kerry her- held her. She had to be taken away again as she wasn't breathing and it turned out Kerry herself needed emergency surgery. The doctors gave George the choice of going with his wife or his newborn daughter and he picked Kerry. He said after he didn't even know the baby and so he was sticking with his wife. I think that's crazy. And again, I'm like, I feel like that has to be like a control thing. I don't know. I think that's an interesting one, though, mm-hmm. because I don't know. I feel like that's a hard one to figure I out. I like, would a hundred percent go with my newborn baby. Also, your wife would want you to go with the baby. I feel like, to me personally, and this is like having experience in it. I think that these like types of men they literally don't care about it like he did not care about that child he did not care about it they don't have any real like feelings he didn't really have any real fatherly feelings it was just like more about Carrie and it's all about Carrie and she's the one that he's controlling and he has the power over her and he wants to like that's his instinct to just go with her but I just thought that that was like wild I just don't like like obviously it's a very bad situation to be in but to me, that's just like, go with the baby. Like, that just make like, you know, Carrie's like a grown up. Like, this is a newborn child that literally just yeah. is helpless, came into the world. Like I don't know. If it was a normal relationship, mm-hmm. that was, aside from all the other stuff, I can kind of understand it in a sense, but it kind of reminds me of, you know, the way people have that whole 
like they've brought this topic up on like TV shows where it's like oh it's a life or death situation mm-hmm. and the husband has to choose whether to save like wife or baby yeah oh I completely and understand the, that yeah like, you know make another mm-hmm. baby that's my wife we can't make another her but in this situation it's hard to kind of if it was a normal relationship it's mm-hmm. hard to understand what you'd be feeling in that moment but obviously with yeah. it being an abusive relationship you've got a whole other side yeah see I feel like for me if you're a parent like immediately the second that kid is born you are that child is your number one even above your partner it's different when you're still like I know what you're you're talking about exactly like when they're still pregnant and it's come to that like well look if you have this baby you're going to die obviously you're going to want to pick your partner in that moment but like I just feel like as like your parent instincts are in from what I hear obviously I'm not a parent and like from what I hear of like you see that child and your instincts like as a parent just kick in you know instantly like you would do anything for that kid and like I think either parent would say that above their own partners so for me like and that's what I think the difference is with an abuser I think if you were a regular ass parent father you'd immediately go with that newborn baby obviously you're going to be freaking out about your wife but like yeah, I definitely think that, like, in that scenario, I think everyone would react differently. Mm-hmm. Like, no one knows what they're going to do in a yeah, situation. Yeah, of course. Have that instant, like, instantaneous connection mm-hmm. that. But I feel like in that scenario, it's very difficult to know what you're automatically going to choose to do. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I of course. I think people out there that would be like, no, I'm saying my mm-hmm. wife, that's my wife. Yeah. But I see the other aspect also. Like, I just think it's a different yeah. one to kind of differentiate. Mm-hmm. Um... So anyways, uh, you might think differently when you read what I'm about to read. But uh, so thankfully... Oh, yeah, no, I know. But I'm just, I'm kind of making a joke because what I'm about to say is going to be kind of funny. Yeah. Uh, so thankfully, both problems were fixed, but it took Carrie a long time to recover emotionally. And when she asked George soon after how he had felt about everything, he said... I honestly thought you were going to die and I wondered who the hell would pay the rent. So yeah, that'll tell you everything you need to know about this man. <laughs> He's like, this baby ain't gonna pay the rent. This baby ain't gonna pay no rent. Um, I feel like though, honestly, because like if that had happened, God forbid that had happened and she had passed away and the baby was fine, he would so be that man that would be going on all the TV shows speaking about how heartbroken he was and I'm a single dad now and like, you know, oh God. Single mom works too. <laughs> <laughs> oh Lordy. It's great to make jokes about these terrible situations. <laughs> Obviously, uh, Obviously, they're right. taken very seriously, and we we don't condone this. But you know, you gotta laugh through the the pain and the violence. Sometimes <laughs> I certainly do. <laughs> so Kerry sometimes wonders if the violence she suffered while pregnant might have played a part in the traumatic birth of DJ. The trauma of it all made her start drinking again. She would down three bottles of prosecco a day. She felt like she didn't have a purpose because George was doing everything and never left her side. He took control of the feeds, the school run, the shopping, the cooking. She felt completely redundant. And this being a key phrase of that, she lost her independence entirely. And again, like, that's exactly what he wasn't doing all of that to be like, oh, baby, you rest, you recover, I'll do everything. It's like, no, like now I have control over every aspect. Now you really are dependent on me because you literally physically are not able to do anything. Which is so sick when you think about it. Like, Jesus. 
Um, And because she was drinking so much, it gave him a reason to call her an alcoholic and a bad mother. He loved having that power over her. He'd come home from the store with bottles of alcohol. He'd make sure that they were there so she drank them all. She'd drink it only for him to give out to her because she was drinking it. So he's just basically feeding that side of her because he wants her to be helpless. He was now too very obviously taking a lot of cocaine. His mental health would be dreadful when he was on a bender, but she was powerless to stop him. When DJ was three months old, he was sectioned under the Mental Health Act after he was found running down the street screaming that someone was going to kill him. He was darting in and out of cars, yelling and threatening no one in particular. Kerry was both mortified and terrified. She didn't want this type of press coverage following her and was also scared for George and what he was going through. The police released a statement after a woman called for help and other neighbours spoke to the paper saying he was behaving very strangely and it was quite frightening. George was released soon after with no further action taken. It was a big fright for them all. He had suffered the equivalent of three heart attacks and later admitted to mixing steroids and sleeping pills with alcohol. That's crazy. Like, that's really, like... Yeah. That's a lot of stuff to be putting into your body, like, on top of everything else that he's putting into it on a daily, you know? Uh, He gave an interview later when they were trying to do damage control with the press, in which he said he was heartbroken that he put Kerry through this, that the brain is so delicate, and the doctor said it was chemical imbalance. He had no feeling of madness or that he was going to cause such uproar and rampage down the street. Of course, Kerry knew that there was more to it, but she played along to keep the peace. To witness him in such a vulnerable state was harrowing. A part of her felt nurturing toward him. She wanted to look after and protect him. They tried their best to put the incident behind him. And that's another reason why I say too, like, you know, people, some people will believe anything a celebrity tells them. Like, I bet there were so many people that watched that interview and were like, oh, like the poor thing. Like he went through and it was all a complete and utter lie. And she knew it was a lie too. Like you can't, you don't know these people. Like these are strangers to you. They can very easily lie if they want to. So because she'd been feeling so miserable, Kerry decided to have an over-the-top wedding and George was also up for that. They had OK Magazine cover it. The same feelings of doubt and panic were there leading up to the big day, but she pushed them away. Having a baby hadn't changed George, but she was sure marriage would. By this point, even she knew she was lying to herself. They organised a joint hen and stag do because there was no way George was going to let Kerry party with the girls without him there. It was a way of him keeping a close eye on her. But she was also happy to keep an eye on him, especially after, as I mentioned earlier, her ex her ex-husband Brian had cheated on her at his stag party. They organised a day in South London with OK Magazine once again in tow. There were about 30 people there and they had spa treatments followed by dinner and drinks and a boat trip on the Thames. That's a lot of T words. Things felt quite chilled, but Kerry was still on edge. She was desperate for everything to go well, especially considering the magazine was there. She didn't recall seeing George for much of the day. She loved the feeling of being able to speak freely with her girls, knowing he was nearby, but not interfering. She should have known that such peace wouldn't last. She had begged him not to do drugs that day, but he just couldn't help himself. When he finally joined her, he was high as a kite. She had gone back to the hotel to freshen up before they were due to board the boat. Her manager, Paul, had gone with her. George came in and immediately went for Paul, threatening to beat him up, getting close to his face with spittle flying out of his mouth. Again with the spit. 
Paul cowered in the corner, shaking with fear. George bellowed at Kerry that he hadn't seen her all day. It was classic George twisting things around on her. She yelled back that he had been with his boys doing God knows what. He told her not to backchat him. Who did she, she think she was? She screamed at him to get over himself. She felt confident having Paul there that he wouldn't physically attack her. He was fuming, but he left before things got nastier. She later found out he gathered some of his friends and they went clubbing. Meanwhile, there was a boat full of guests waiting to set sail. Kerry was heartbroken and humiliated. He had just left without a second thought for anyone else. Everyone was told to go home. The cruise was off. Kerry was in tears. She sat in the hotel room alone, wondering what he was up to. She was ringing him constantly and seeing Instagrams of him off his head with some woman and his friends. She prayed the wedding wouldn't go the same way. He was so unpredictable. He didn't come back that night and the next morning she put all of his clothes in the bathtub and filled it with water. She felt better knowing how much it would inconvenience him. She got in the car and went to her mother's. Like sometimes just being a petty little biatch is just makes you feel better, you know? Gotta get a job in there somewhere. Yes. So George's mother then called her wanting to know what the hell had happened. She begged her not to marry him. This is George's own mother begged Carrie not to marry him. She said he was a drug addict and he would destroy her. Like, if your own mother is saying that, I know. it's pretty bad. Like, and honestly, my ex too, like, his mom called me one time and, like, I knew she knew what was up. Like, she knew and she was warning me about him, which was the most bizarre bizarre thing and I feel like I didn't really get it at the time but like afterwards I was like she knew what was up so you know what's bad if if their own mothers are Jesus I mean when George found out where she where she was he followed her and made her get in the car she went to see her grandmother on the way home and found out after that she after she had gotten home a few hours later that she had passed away Kerry was devastated and as the death took up so much of her thoughts she soon got over the madness of the hen and stag party. Thankfully the wedding itself turned out to be brilliant they had so much fun but little did Kerry know that George had wanted to do a runner the night before. Maybe it was the drugs maybe it was nerves but she was upset when she found out but kept her mouth shut and got over it. The speeches were rather strange. George's brother and his best man told a disturbing story of how George had once tried to rescue a chicken trapped in a fence, but when he pulled too hard, he ripped the chicken's head off. Like, that's a weird story to tell at a wedding. No, but doesn't it always begin with them harming an animal in some way? Always, always. And, like, you just know that he wasn't, like, you know, horrified, probably. He was probably, like, they probably, like, wet themselves laughing when it happened as well, which is just, like, crazy. Um, I rescued a goat once that was caught in a fence up in uh, Mount Brandon. Yeah. Yeah, he was like, and then like looked over because it was really misty. Um, So like we kept walking and we were like, oh no, like he's stuck. Because you know, they're the ones that have the, you know, their horns that go around. You know, the ones that ran. And like we had to like, like one of us was holding the fence open. The other one had to hold his head and then the other one was trying to guide the wire around <laughs> it was like what's that game where you go around and you can't touch the the oh, wire yeah. without the buzz happening yeah it was yeah just a just a little side note if you wanted to know <laughs> that time I saved a goat <laughs> uh, yeah, or a sheep or whatever it was was it a sheep is a ram a sheep a ram is a sheep right I'm 
Yeah, it was a sheep. It was not yeah. a goat. Yeah, sorry. Sorry about that. <laughs> so, Get it right. <laughs> damn. His best man also tried to make light of the problems that George had faced that year when he handed Kerry a parcel with a note on the front saying, Dear Miss Kerry Katona, please could you make sure George wears this straight jacket the next time he goes off on one of his drink and steroid benders. Many thanks, Chief Inspector Smith, West Wickham Police Force. There was huge laughter from the crowd and although Kerry laughed along with them, she felt a strange sensation in the pit of her stomach. It wasn't a joke. In his own speech, George thanked Kerry for putting up with him. She couldn't help herself and said, that's an understatement, as the guests cheered. They were making light of something that was all too painfully real. So things ticked by normally for a while as they settled into married life as a family of seven. The couple of years that followed would be the worst of Kerry's life as George became increasingly dependent on drugs and his psychosis worsened. It was rare that the kids ever witnessed any violence, but they heard the screaming and saw the black eyes. She wouldn't acknowledge what was happening with them and they wouldn't talk about it. She felt such shame as a parent. She felt she was letting them down. She blocked it out and tried to make herself believe they weren't suffering. She convinced herself it was nowhere near as bad as her own traumatic childhood. But of course, everything is relative and it was equally as awful for them as her childhood had been for her. She had no right to take that away from them. She felt she was responsible for staying with George. Around this time, she and George started splitting up and getting back together a lot. It was incredibly unhealthy and left the kids with little stability. She'd have a few days or even weeks of respite from him, but then they'd give, another thing, give things another go. Everything would be rosy for a while and then it would all kick off again. He would smack her around and say, happy now, happy you got the black eye. You pushed me into it. He'd say she was like a red rag to a bull and that she should know better for pushing his buttons. But she was starting to get bolder and began calling the police on him. After one particularly nasty row, she got the police out. He was off his head on coke most nights and his paranoia was reaching new levels. It was frightening to see him like that. Getting the police out seemed the only way to keep her family safe. They would give her warnings and speak to her, but she would always back down and it would begin all over again. George would frequently go back to his parents' house around this time and the press were starting to pick up on their problems. In May 2015, after another breakup, George gave an interview to a magazine. He said it had been tough lately and they'd been rowing a lot. Marriage isn't what he thought it would be. It was hard work. They argued a lot over money issues and they had to live under a strict budget. They were both fiery characters and that didn't help things. He said there had been times he thought it wouldn't last and in his darkest moments, he wondered if they should be together. But he loved her so much that he was determined to make it work. So, oh, I hated this part of the story because the kids get involved. So George would be terribly cruel to Kerry's oldest daughter, Molly. He would call her crude names and belittle her. Her self-esteem must have been so low and yet Kerry kept brushing it off his banter, trying not to make a big deal out of it. She never saw her cry, but she spent most days in her room alone. She knows now that she should have done more to protect her and that is something she will never get over. Max, her son, used to be terrified of George. He started acting out both at home and at school. George could be terribly cruel to him. So this is so disgusting. He would refer to Max and his little sister Heidi as the druggies kids, as they were the children of her ex-husband and drug dealer Mark Croft. And then he would call Molly and Lily the golden girls, as they were Brian McFadden's daughters. So that is just so... Can you imagine, like, saying that to little kids? Like, that's so disgusting. 
There were a few times when Max saw George being rough with Kerry. One time he saw from the window when George got Kerry in a chokehold after getting out of the car and then spat on her. Another time he had her on her knees in the bedroom holding her hands above her head when Max came in. George said to him that his mother was trying to kill him. Max was so frightened. Kerry told him they were just playing and to go to the other room. But it was DJ who worried Kerry the most as she was picking up on things she had seen her father do. She was only a toddler, but she started to spit on Kerry and would punch and kick her when she was frustrated. It was all mimicked behaviour. George didn't see it as a problem and she thought in some warped way of his that he was even proud to have a child who was so similar to himself. George was still visiting a lot and the fact that they weren't together had him on his best behaviour but she was still reluctant to let him come back in the house. They were still sleeping together however. She was powerless and pathetic. She was still hopeful he would change. He even had started practising black magic. She used to find... Yeah, so crazy. She used to find hundreds of dead flies in the bathroom. He would refer to her as his devil angel while doing spells in the bathroom. Kerry believed that he had one foot on earth and the other in the dark side. So yeah, that's uh, that's never good, right? We've, we've leveled up, for sure. Yeah, we have, we have escalated. By October 2015, George was basically living with them again. The beatings were back to being a regular occurrence and now he had started keeping weapons in the house, including a taser gun. Did I tell you that uh, one of our security guards found a taser gun on the shop floor a few weeks ago? <laughs> how random like such a new york thing but you could tell that it was a woman's one because it had like a zebra print like cover for it. i don't know if anyone came back to claim it uh it was just chilling in the office there for a while so yeah it's in our lost and found if anyone's looking for it <laughs> Uh, so there was also a 14 inch hunting knife stored in the closet i don't know what man needs a hunting knife that's not a hunter you know, and in the- yeah, and even like even a hunting knife. Do people even use hunting knives for hunting? Don't people use guns now? I don't know. Yeah, they carry knives, but I think they carry them in their trucks or something. Yeah, like not like you know, you know, just under my pillow. <laughs> One night, she and George went for a drink in their new local pub. He got drunk and ended up in a fight with two young guys. They ran away when Kerry told them he would kill them. When they were headed home, George was still fuming. He took out the knife when they got in and said that the two guys were on their way here. She said they weren't and he said, shut up, you cunt, yelling and punching her in the face. He ripped a patch of hair out of her head, leaving her with a huge bald spot. He dragged her through the house and jumped on her, kicking and punching her relentlessly. He spat on her again. I feel like I've said that word 5,000 times. And went upstairs. upstairs. Everybody count how many times. It's a drinking game. Uh, So he went upstairs to the bedroom to watch, expecting the guys to come back. Carrie slept on the sofa in pain and shaking. And that's where her daughter Lily found her the next morning. And she applied makeup to her bruises in sad silence. So Kerry was supposed to appear on Big Brother's Bit on the Side a few days later, but George said she couldn't go on TV looking like that. Um, Big Brother, uh, Bit on the Side is like the kind of like after show, like, you know, audience questions type show that's on after the UK version of Big Brother for anyone that doesn't know. 
Uh, so the bruises were big, black and shiny. She said she would cover it, but he refused to let her, calling her manager Paul to say she'd gotten drunk and fallen down the stairs and had two black eyes and couldn't do the show. The lies spilled out of him like it was the most natural thing in the world. Paul knew the bruises weren't her doing. He knew exactly what George was like. She then decided to take pictures of her injuries and sent them to her mother and Paul. She deleted them soon after as she couldn't risk George seeing them. Breaking point came one night when they were chilling at home with the kids, including one of Heidi's school friends. It was their usual Friday movie night. George said he was going out for some cigarettes from the, the garage, which was five minutes down the road, but he was gone for nearly an hour. Then he came home with two bottles of Prosecco, which Kerry had no intention of drinking, and she was immediately suspicious. He said he had forgotten the cigarettes and had to go out again. She knew something was up. Her instinct told her he had gone out to get drugs from someone. They had only just moved there, so she wondered where he had found someone to supply him. As soon as he came back, she could tell. He had become sheepish and childlike, which he usually did when he had taken cocaine. She followed him to the garden, asking where he had been and accusing him of taking coke. He denied it and she told him not to dare do drugs when her kids were there. She told him to leave, but of course he wouldn't and went straight upstairs. She could see that Molly was on edge. That night, Kerry slept on the sofa as she couldn't bear to be around him. The next morning, she went up to check on him and found him sat in the corner of the room, clutching a bag of white powder and hoovering up more drugs. It was 8am. She brought him a beer to calm him down. She had to get the kids out of there. She ended up staying with them at the playground for nine hours. Finally, they went home and she was doing everything she could to act normal in front of them. She just knew something big was about to happen and her whole body was shaking. George was wandering around the kitchen, his eyes vacant. His face was completely expressionless. He looked at her as if he didn't know her. He took out his phone and said he thought monsters were inside it and coming for him. She tried to be gentle knowing he was in full psychosis. The phone rang. It was the police saying they had received a missed call from this number relating to a domestic disturbance. She knew it was George calling them. Then George picked up the other line and said, my wife is trying to murder me. Her stomach dropped. She left him on the phone to them and called her neighbor, neighbor Amelia, who she had become friends with. She asked her to take the kids. Kerry hid in the utility room after they were gone, absolutely terrified. She knew something bad was about to happen. Amelia came back to the house to check on her. Then they heard the sirens. Thankfully, due to his record, they had a big red mark next to George's name and so any disturbance or threat was always taken seriously with him. An officer managed to coax him out of the house. He was calm and measured but kept saying monsters were after him. Kerry told the police about the hunting knife and laser gun. George's mother was on speakerphone with her at this point and begged her to come clean about everything with them, which she did. She couldn't, suddenly couldn't shut up. The police put an order on him that ensured he didn't come near her at any point. He went back to his parents' house, even though they were just as scared of him as she was. The police were great and put lights up in the front and the back of the house. She was given a domestic support worker to talk to and a panic alarm. She had a code word with them for when she was in danger. Her support worker, Tracy, said, that's actually so good. Like, I feel like... Um, nice to hear that they've really implemented stuff that can help yes exactly like obviously it's not the same everywhere um but like just knowing yeah. that oh, people like want the reasons mm-hmm. and obviously i'm not speaking from experience but what seems to be one of the biggest things is people are afraid to go to authorities because mm-hmm. they feel like they're not going to be believed completely like they feel like they're not going to be believed and also like you know it's like if you get a protection order it's literally just a piece of paper so like yeah. it's not going to stop them from like coming i mean they can just come and like 
do anything to kill you or anything um, before the cops even get there. So like knowing that they have things like this is is uh, really, really great. Uh, so her support worker, Tracy, said, you know, you don't have to put up with this. This isn't normal. Kerry burst into tears. Tracy told her facts and statistics about abusive relationships. And she really believes that this is what gave her the strength to get the ball rolling and start getting herself out of the marriage for good. George was later charged with assault by beating and possessing a banned weapon and had to appear in court to answer bail. She wanted him out of her life for good now. She was done. So they managed to stay apart for a good few weeks while he was out on bail, but by January 2016, he had wormed his way back in once more. They'd begun to meet in secret. He made her feel like he was sorry and she she was once again powerless. The police came to check on her at one point, not knowing that he was actually in the house. She was there with her aunt Angela, who gave them the heads up that the cops were there. Instead of being grateful for the heads up, George put his hand over Angela's mouth and through gritted teeth said, don't say a fucking word. They were all frozen. If he was caught, he would be arrested on the spot for breaking the conditions of his bail. But he always felt he was above the law. Kerry eventually dropped the charges and they reconciled. It's so hard to like, you know, no matter how many of these stories I tell and like knowing myself so much about it, like it's still so hard when you hear like, oh, they've gotten out of it and everything's done. And then like, no, like they they go back again. Like it's so hard to hear it, even though I understand it. But like, it's still just so hard to kind of like process it and just be like, no, like you just want to like pull them back. Uh, so Carrie still can't explain the thought process behind that, but she just missed him. It was like she couldn't function without him. Because he was so controlling, she'd become completely codependent. And oddly enough, she felt safer having him in the house. At least then she knew where he was and what mood he was in. She would forever be on edge, wondering what he could be doing when he wasn't around. Would he be out planning on taking the kids, stalking their school? It was just easier not to wonder. Plus, she kept using his mental health as an excuse for his behaviour. She didn't want another failed marriage and another baby daddy not living under the same roof as his child. And that's so true too. Like, she would have gotten so much crap again, like, from the press and from social media. It's like, oh, look at Carrie. Like, she can't keep a husband. She's another kid with another man and, like, all that kind of thing. Of course. Um, and you know that's exactly what they did like she got all of that shit like once these stories you know started uh, coming out so things came to a head in 2017 they were now fighting constantly and it was really bad she believed she deserved the violence she was being subjected to but the kids were suffering and it was becoming even more apparent how unstable George was Every day she was risking her life and the kids' lives. She couldn't keep doing this. He was now becoming ugly to her. The more she saw of his true personality, the less attractive he was. She was, however, still sexually attracted to him and that was her biggest weakness. But as a human, he was becoming detestable. So she was given another amazing opportunity to join Big Brother again towards the end of 2016 to take part in a celebrity version for a task as a returning housemate. The pay wasn't great, but she needed the money and thought it could boost her career and give her more work, especially after the bad press of her last breakup with George. Even George agreed to it, but as time got closer, he was getting cold feet. He wasn't going to allow her to do it. He said, you'll go on that show over my dead body. She had already, however, signed the contract. The chauffeur was booked to pick her up, but George wasn't going to let her go without a fight. He said, I take it you're going to pay me to look after the kids while you're gone. 
det er... Ja. What is he, a babysitter? <laughs> Apparently so. So then, in the most sinister voice she had ever heard, he said, leave those kids with me and watch what fucking happens. Like, can you imagine, like, and that threat too, like, that's not just a threat. Like, that's very, very, very real. And, like, we've seen it happen countless times where, you know, the father will kill the kids just to get back at the wife who leaves him, you know? Of course, um, yeah. So she wondered how she was going to get out of the job. Now she knew she couldn't go, but she also needed money. She had the contract um and all the rest of it and all she saw was just pure ugliness in the moment he just was a nasty ugly waste of space to her and like you get to that point where like it's just one thing and you're just like oh I really actually like despise you like you're just an awful awful person um and exactly exactly and um you know she this kind of prompted her to because you know she didn't she didn't take the job and then her like she remembers that her kids looked at her with such like disappointment and like she never wanted to feel that shame again you know um because it's one thing to have like it just be you but you know when your kids are involved because they're having to go through it because of you also um so yeah so anyways All she could see when she looked at George now was his ugliness, a con artist who never paid his way. She felt like a switch had gone off in her head. It took a few more weeks to finally leave him. She was terrified about being alone again, but she couldn't shake the premonition that she was going to be dead. Um, And again, that's very true. Like, that is something that happens like it it is something that happens and that's why people don't leave because there is that threat that like they're actually going to kill them so once he was gone she sat lily and molly down and profusely apologized to them she knew now that she had done to them exactly what her mother had done to her and that was something she thought she would never do she was ashamed sad and exhausted Kerry still wanted to make sure George had access to DJ. She was thinking about supervised visits only, but when she saw them both together, she couldn't fathom him hurting her. She also wanted to shield Max and Heidi from the pain. They also called George daddy, even though he wasn't their biological dad, but sadly, he showed his true colours when it came to them. He chose to completely discard them, refusing to acknowledge their existence and claiming he wanted nothing to do with them, only DJ. Her heart absolutely broke for them. They didn't understand why they were being chucked aside like they didn't matter. She hated him for doing that to them. They now had two fathers who had turned their backs on them. One day, a few weeks after the split, while high as a kite, George crawled naked onto a rooftop in Liverpool. DJ had been seeing him fairly regularly and he was calmer and Kerry was feeling at peace with her decision. He would turn on the charm whenever they were together and it took every fibre of her being not to sleep with him. She convinced herself she didn't love him anymore, didn't even particularly like him, but she still had this primal urge for him that never went away. I feel like a lot of that is kind of a a little bit of like self-loathing too. Yeah, you know completely like I don't necessarily think it's like oh she's still attracted to him because like she's already said that she found him so ugly now um, and I think that's kind of just what it is really 
Um, so she got a call from Paul, her manager, saying the papers had been on the phone to him saying Doris had been crawling around naked on his rooftop, screaming his head off. And there was footage. When she saw it, it was one of the most disturbing things she had ever seen, but it was also familiar. He was yelling out, kill me. It almost sounded like barking. He sounded like a wounded animal and was frothing at the mouth. The police were begging him to get down. He looked completely lost and frightened. Kerry knew then in her heart that it was over forever. He was so troubled he needed immediate help. She didn't have the mental capacity to deal with it anymore. And once George knew this, he turned nasty again. He began publicly accusing her of violence and did everything he could to slander her name. He gave an interview to a national paper where he said that she was the abusive one in the marriage and she was responsible for all of his troubles. Despite all his efforts to destroy her name, he would still be trying to lure her back into bed whenever he was around. She knew she was weak enough to fall for it. So she needed to take action. In a moment she calls a moment of madness, she began to date a guy called James English in September 2017. He was a prime example of getting under someone to get over someone. She wasn't really in the right frame of mind to be dating anyone. She was struggling to come to terms with the trauma she'd been through, but she was immediately taken with this man, but reports began to surface that he had some untoward past behaviour. He had, in fact, assaulted a woman previously. But for her, it was the perfect distraction and his red flags didn't faze her. Just having someone to flirt with lifted her confidence when inside her heart was shattered. He was a rare case for her as she had never slept around. He was fun and provided her with an escape of sorts. She also knew if she slept with someone else, it would be the end of her and George. He'd never come back to her if he thought she was now soiled goods. It was her way out for good. But within two weeks of meeting him, Kerry was pregnant. Like, can you imagine... Like, two weeks after meeting a guy, you get pregnant. After going through this trauma... There's balloons on my screen and I don't know why. Um, after going through this trauma... And now you're pregnant by this man that you literally just met. Like, I mean, oh my god. So, she immediately booked an appointment for an abortion, but she just couldn't go through with it. She was overwhelmed with guilt. Then she booked another appointment and even ended up booking a third, but she just couldn't go through with it. She cried herself to sleep most nights during that time, debating what to do. She even wanted someone to push her down the stairs or to have some kind of accident so the baby would go away and the decision would be out of her hands. She wasn't connected to the pregnancy at all and she didn't want another child with another man. Eventually, the maternal side of her won and she and James agreed to keep the baby. She found out it was a girl, but she still didn't feel anything. She tried to convince herself she was doing the right thing. But then fate stepped in and she lost the baby. It happened right before her work trip to India, which she had to go to as she needed the money. She bled the whole way on the plane and ended up in the hospital. She couldn't say she was devastated it was happening, but her head was in a bad way. Even now, she still can't think of that baby as her daughter. She hadn't been conceived in love like her other children had. Her heart ached for the unborn baby, but relief also flooded her once she was gone. It was a strange and cruel situation, which now makes her feel really guilty. I mean, you have to kind of understand her not, you know, kind of being happy in a way that that happens because, like, she hasn't, you know, processed her own trauma and then, like, she's still in the middle of it and then does not know this man. 
with the last one. Had a tra- exactly, had the traumatic birth, the last one, like, doesn't feel the connection with the baby, like, and then I feel like she, this would have really sent her, like, completely over the... Like, I feel like if she had gone through and had that baby, I feel like that just almost would have been the end of her in a lot of ways. So she was all alone in India at this point, as she had to stay on for a few more days to recover. Her close friend and her husband flew over to see her. Once they were there, this is very messed up, whilst Kerry was high on morphine, rather than console and comfort her, this woman, who she thought was her close friend, took a video of her, posted it online and wrote the caption, this is Kerry Katona murdering her child. So she flew all the way to India just to do that to her. Like, I, I don't understand that. Um, so she had her take it down as soon as she could and thankfully because it was medical information the press weren't able to write about it so she ended things with James straight away of course he sold stories on her afterwards she thought he just wanted to be famous and loved the idea of being seen out and about with Kerry Tona it was also always on her mind how angry George would be to find out she was pregnant she was sure he would have tried to take DJ from her out of spite thankfully to her knowledge he never got wind of it and she's certain that she would have paid the price for it. Of course, Carrie could still not stay away from George. She had completely and utterly convinced herself she would never go near him again, but they ended up sleeping together a few more times. He would woo her into bed, and for a split second, she might convince herself that they belonged together, but then she would come to her senses and remind him they were not back together. And she also knew that he had other women on the go. He was using her to prove he still had that hold on her, ensuring she knew full well he could have her whenever he wanted. She feels that she kept going back because of self-sabotage to punish herself. She truly believes she deserved the heartache. Of course, looking back today, she sees things a little differently. He was a man with so many problems. He needed psychiatric help, rehab, and even jail would have done him some good. So just so he could have taken time out to help himself. So something had to give and thankfully it did. He told the press he had served her divorce papers in November 2017. The reality was that he had actually served her with a financial order with a list of all the things he wanted from her. He never served her any divorce papers. He never had any intention of divorcing her. She was so broke by this point she begged him for a quick online divorce. He wasn't happy. He came around to the house, walked in, saying she was his wife forever until the day he died. He wasn't going anywhere without a fight and she had no fight left in her. Then he said, but don't worry, Kerry, because I will die. He had been going to spiritualist churches and getting lots of mediums and psychic readings. She wondered if this was having an effect on his mindset. He was convinced he was going to die. Over the next few weeks, things quietened down. Learning to live without the constant threat of violence was giving her renewed energy. She threw herself into work and tried to make enough money to feed the kids. She moved in with her friend for a while while she was doing panto in Manchester and it was helpful to have a safe haven knowing her kids could also stay with her. George stayed relatively calm, although they did have a few instances where the police were called to oversee a handover when he came to pick up DJ for visits. One time he simply wouldn't leave her friend's property so they had to call the cops. He was threatening and claiming they were taking too long to bring him DJ. In the end, she barely stayed five minutes with her dad as she was becoming too distressed and didn't want to see him. It must have hurt him, but he did the right thing in bringing her back. She was still convinced that George would never hurt his daughter. 
In March 2018, almost a year after their final breakup, Kerry was getting on with her life. Their hooking up had finally ended that last November and she was slowly starting to come out of the other side and was feeling strong. She did a lovely photo shoot with the kids for publication. The headline said how they were happier now and she wouldn't take George back in a million years. Then on Mother's Day, Kerry made the decision to take out a restraining order against George, which then sparked a series of events which made her feel so low she became suicidal. She was no longer willing to risk her family's safety while he was continuing to be a danger to himself and the kids. She had FaceTimed George so he could speak to DJ and DJ, being only three years old, wasn't in the mood to chat. She was distracted and didn't want to sit. George, of course, didn't see it like that. He thought Kerry was turning her against him. His smile twisted into a scowl and a familiar darkness fell across his face as he glared at his little girl. Kerry knew immediately where this was going. She felt the familiar knots in her stomach, but this time it felt different as it was directed at DJ and she was more frightened than she had ever been. He turned his attention back to Kerry and said, I read your fucking magazine article. You think you're so clever, don't you? She was taken aback by the vitriol. She should have known it would trigger an irrational rage. She had publicly stated in a best-selling national magazine that she was happier without him. Of course, this was going to push all his buttons. He said, watch what happens next, Kerry. DJ now sensed the shift in tone. Her eyes were wide as she watched her father on the screen. He said, DJ, hold on tight to your fucking mother. I'm fucking coming to get you. His threatening tone and his use of language in front of their child scared and riled her in equal measure. She begged him not to speak like that in front of her. He stared at DJ and repeated his earlier threat, this time in a whisper. Watch what fucking happens now. Wait and see, Kerry. Just you watch. She can die with me. That is terrifying. How old was DJ at this point? Uh, DJ, I think, was only three. Three years old at the time. Oh, what? Mm-hmm. Like, that threat is very fucking real as well. Like, you're threatening that I'm going to kill me and our child. Uh, so she thought that he must be on something. He looked at DJ again and said, Daddy's coming for you. His black, empty eyes then turned back to Kerry. It was like seeing the devil come to life. How's your mom, Kerry? He smirked. Is she all right? Kerry felt her blood run cold. Her brain was racing, thinking he was going to hurt DJ and her mother. She didn't care if he came for her, but she didn't want him to ever lay a finger on her family. She was unable to speak as she was gripped in an icy fear. He said, you just watch what happens, winked and hung up. She sat there glued to the spot. His sinister wink at the end of the call scared her far more than anything. At least when he was beating her up, she knew what she was getting. But now in this situation, she didn't know what he was going to do next. It was chilling. Was he going to come for her, for her mother, for DJ? She heard the ding of a new email and it was from George saying, Kerry, why have you hung up when I was having a nice conversation with my daughter? Have you been taking your medication properly? Are you drinking again? I'll speak to my lawyer about this. She knew the tone to be one of manipulation and to frighten her, but to the outside world would seem concerning and caring. He was planning something, gathering written evidence to use against her. It was so calculating and evil, she reached for the phone and with shaking hands called the police to tell them everything and request a restraining order. So, like, that email was written, like, to make it seem like he was so concerned about her. So then when he did do something to her mother, to their daughter, to himself, whoever, it would seem like 
it wasn't actually his fault that he was super rational and like she's the crazy one like it's just so calculating preempted yeah completely completely and utterly um so yeah so um yeah that's just like frightening and that's just something that happens like so many times and it's it it does end up happening where like the kids die the women themselves die they kill themselves like um it's just re it's just really terrifying uh, so in 2018, on her way to do Panto in Norwich, where George was living with his parents, she heard rumours he was planning to turn up with a knife, pull her off stage and kill her there and then because he wouldn't let her see D- she wouldn't let him see DJ. She was on edge on stage every night, but thankfully he never showed up. She heard through his friend much later that he had planned on injecting DJ with heroin and then killing himself. Um, so like, that's terrifying imagine yeah. like even yeah. the fact that you're using your daughter like as a threat like that is so scary so soon after Kerry met a, a man named ryan on bumble she had been done with men and was on a journey of self-love and learning how to be independent again she was feeling stronger and happier than ever the thought of being in a relationship made her feel sick i hear you lady But there were points where the loneliness was unbearable for her. She longed for adult company and thought dating could be a fun distraction. When she first saw Ryan's picture, she noticed how kind his eyes looked. She had always liked a dangerous bad boy, but he looked sweet and not like her usual type. He was eight years younger than her, incredibly ambitious and driven. He was a good guy. It ended up being a real slow burner. She was too terrified of getting into another relationship, but after a while, they were dating regularly. Um... So there was a lot of like back and forth for a while where, you know, she would be with him for a while and everything would be great. And then she would just feel like she still needed to like work on herself. Um, and then, you know, she kind of couldn't really stay away from him. Um, so she was kind of a little back and forth in the beginning, but then eventually she um, decided to give it a go with him. So, on Saturday, July 6th, 2019, a year since Kerry had spoken to George, she saw one day that she had an incoming FaceTime call from his father. She immediately started shaking. She knew something had to be wrong, as he had no reason to be calling her. She put the phone down and tried to forget it, but her mind was racing. Does he have DJ? Is he anywhere near my kids? She went into her doctor's appointment as planned, and when she got back in the car, he was calling her again. She called her house. All of her kids were there with Molly and Lily taking care of their younger siblings. Kerry told Lily to lock all the doors. She was starting to panic. Then her manager called her. She suddenly felt in her bones that George was dead. When she answered, she asked Paul if he was calling to tell her that George was dead. And he confirmed that yes, he was. She's plot twist she screamed and cried as ryan held her she somehow felt more frightened than ever how was she going to tell the kids her heart ached for dj and for george as they would now never have the chance to meet again so it turned out george had died after eating a ball of cocaine that he had stashed in a sock he'd been staying at a holiday inn for a few days and was raking in so many drugs he'd been hallucinating he told staff he was seeing wasps and shadows in his room Police were called a few hours before his death after fellow guests complained he had been wandering the hotel corridors asking them to be his friend. 
They saw the drugs and knew he wasn't right. He kept telling them he was troubled and was having problems in his personal life and freely admitted to doing coke. Later at the inquest, the police officer admitted she wasn't worried about the drugs and didn't feel there was enough to arrest him for possession, that she was mainly concerned for his welfare. If they had arrested him or taken him to a hospital, he would likely still be alive. Instead, when housekeeping came to his room the next morning, he was sat there eating the drugs from the sock. He quickly became unwell and they called an ambulance, but he died shortly at the hospital. Mental illness and drugs had finally taken him. Knowing she would now never see him again brought a huge sense of guilt to Kerry, even though she knew she had done the right thing in stopping his and DJ's contact. He had showed no signs of getting help. So she decided it would be important to go to the Chapel of Rest and see his body one last time. She was angry at him for dying on them after everything he had put the family through. She took her mother with her. It was such a surreal experience. She collapsed on the floor screaming as soon as she saw his body. She was confused and angry and couldn't stop crying. She screamed at him, you dickhead, how could you do this to us? How could you put us through so much hell just to go and bloody die? He was laying there smirking with dry blood on his nose. She was angry with him. He left his beautiful little girl without a father. She knew it was inevitable. That he was never going to change. What had it all been for? Her mother told her she should give him a kiss and it might diffuse the anger, but she thought he didn't deserve it. She took one last look at his cold, dead corpse. Suddenly she could visualise him alive again. She could smell him, hear his voice, feel his soft skin, hear his laughter, feel his fist coming at her. Her entire relationship with him flashed before her. She ended up kissing him after all. He had also been her everything. He knew her better than anyone. She had so many conflicting feelings she was struggling to hold it all together. As she turned to leave, she knew she would never see George Kay, her husband, her tormentor, the great love of her life, ever again. She didn't go to the funeral. She was still so scared of him, even though he wasn't alive anymore. She felt like she didn't have the right to be there after everything. She had said her goodbyes and that's how she wanted it to stay. And she also didn't want it to become a press circus. She did offer to help pay for the funeral, even though she had very little money, but she never heard back from his family. She tried to distract them all that day by taking the kids to the cinema. Her ex-husband Brian even put some money into their bank so that he could take, she could take them out. He had actually been one of the first people to message her when George's death was announced. Regardless of their check or past, he was there for her in that moment and that was something she would never forget. It came to light after his passing that George, who was fueled by rage and armed with fake emails after Kerry had issued the restraining order, had reached out to a group called Fathers for Justice. I don't know if you've ever heard of them before. I kind of heard vaguely a little bit about them before. So they're a group that aim to gain public and parliamentary support for changes in UK legislation on fathers' rights, mainly using stunts and protests often conducted in costume. While Kerry believed fathers should be involved with their kids, fathers who were proving to be a danger to their families were obviously different. It made no sense why you would want to give a violent man access to a child just because he sees it as his right. So after George's passing, Matt O'Connor, the founder of Fathers for Justice, printed an article full of lies on their website without ever coming to Kerry for her side of the story. Um, Paul called to tell her she was being publicly blamed for George's death. So here is a little bit of what the article said. And the article is still on the website, which is where I actually got it. And there's a link in the bio if anyone uh, wants to read the whole thing. 
So it says, George K. died of a broken heart. He was broken hearted after being denied access to his beloved daughter, Dylan George, by his ex, Kerry Katona. Both George and Kerry had well-documented mental health and drug issues. However, she was treated very differently in a way which illustrates the way society supports mothers and abandons fathers. Unlike Kerry, George was punished for having mental health issues. He was punished when Kerry chose to stop him having any access to DJ, exploiting his mental health problems to use against him. Safe in the knowledge, the courts returned a blind eye to her issues. I know because he came to Fathers for Justice for help. I know because I too was left suicidal in similar circumstances, unable to cope with the pain and loss of not seeing my children. George told me he was DJ's primary carer much of the time when Kerry was on drink and drug benders or away on publicised holidays organised by her agent. He said there was an abusive pattern to Kerry's behaviour. She would go on a drink and drug benders leaving all the children, five children with four different fathers with him, then have another baby, lose weight, sell her shame story to the press, produce a fitness video and start all over again. In fact, George loved all the children and helped raise them for six years. If he was good enough father then, why wasn't he after they separated? He said Kerry thought kids equaled cash and she had a history of denying her children access to their fathers, having done the same to her ex, Mark Croft. George was a loving dad and a vulnerable adult who needed our love and support. The living bereavement of being separated from his daughter caused him unbearable pain. He begged and begged Kerry and her solicitors for contact with his daughter, who was repeatedly denied any kind of access, including supervised contact. Instead of being supported, he was left broken at the side of the road like countless fathers before him and countless fathers who will follow him. I wish there was more we could have done to help him. I wish there was more everyone could do to help all fathers left in this position. In an age of mental health awareness, we have a duty to support separated dads. Now, like, it's one thing to be, you know, I, I do believe that, like, you know, there should be places that fathers can go, like, genuinely that need access to their kids. Um, But, like... Threatening to inject their kids with heroin. This is literally the most misogynistic letter. Like, you can't say that, like, you know, oh, everything is great from what, like, it's the misogyny in the letter. It's like, that's not a letter that's saying, like, you know, like, it's putting all the blame on her just because she's a woman and, like, oh, she gets everything because she's a woman when we know, in fact, it's the Colleen daughter opposite of it. Um, and then, like, the fact that they never even asked for her side of the story either. It's just so sick. And the fact that it's still there also. But, like, if you do enough research into this group, like, they're literally gross. Um, and, like, you know, she's obviously being... Also, but, like, if you think you're doing something correct, why do you need to act like a vigilante? And, mm -hmm. like, have masks on at protests and... Completely. Completely. Um, so, yeah. So, that's just, like just really really freaking gross uh so it was 10 sorry not 10 years two years after his death when the inquest took place Kerry was now living with Ryan and they were building a solid future together she'd been feeling happy and optimistic but the inquest set her back she was drained emotionally and was hurt she hadn't been invited to attend she was still his wife as they'd never been officially divorced she wouldn't have gone anyway out of respect but she felt she should have been at least invited so she could get answers for DJ 
Why should she find out from the papers how her child's father had died? In the two years since his death, she had never heard from George's parents. She believed it was in DJ's best interest to have contact with her grandparents, but they wouldn't respond to any of Kerry's messages about her asking to video call with her. And this killed Kerry. So she went to... uh, Sorry, she didn't go to the inquest, but, you know, she obviously was able to see afterwards what everything that was said and she was really shocked by these statements that were made about her by George's family I remember this is the same family who you know the mom literally was like saying we're scared of him too and like please don't marry him um so they wasted no time in blaming her for his death, despite the fact that she hadn't seen him for 18 months before that. His brother told the court that Ker- that George's drug taking had gotten worse when he was with Kerry. She agreed in a way he had always had problems, but she was always begging him to stop, not encourage him. He also said the drug taking got significantly worse after they separated due to the fact that he was stopped from seeing his child. His mother also made out that Kerry had introduced George to drugs, the same woman who had warned her before her wedding not to go through with it because he was an addict. She understood the desire to defend her son when he was dead, but the truth was the truth. She said, George was a lovely lad. He made friends easily. He was kind and he would do anything to help anyone. There were personal difficulties he had in his life that may have led him taking more recreational drugs. He had a social life at that time which revolved around celebrity friends that would provide him with money and there was talk about helping him set up a business abroad. What they were saying blew Kerry's mind. How could they blame his drug use on their personal difficulties? It all felt like such a kick in the teeth. The details of George's death, especially the detail of him walking around asking people to be his friend, made Kerry tearful, thinking he was scared, lonely and desperate. She couldn't bear the thought of it. His death was ruled as drug-related, which was a relief in some ways as so many people had tried to imply it was suicide. And just like that, George's story was over. She wished she had been wired differently. She wished she hadn't been so cruel. She wished he was charming and funny and lovable the entire time they were together, like she knew he could be. But you can change the past and you can change the man. Maybe it was for the best. Life after George was tough, but she also found a renewed strength. She swore she would never allow herself to be put through that again. She was going to make her money back, get her career back on track, embrace her love for Ryan, love herself and be the best mother she could possibly be. She was going to come back fighting. It was impossible to shake the trauma she'd been through and she noticed a steady decline in her mental health as a result. She spent many days in bed battling her feelings. She was still grieving and dealing with her guilt. She also spent a lot of time looking back at how the media had been treating her over the years when it came to her mental health and wondered how it had been acceptable. She thought that growing up the way she did around abusive men, she was always going to have issues. She had watched her own mother deal with an abusive partner. It had almost destroyed their relationship many times. She'd always been aware that she didn't want to end up like her, a difficult woman who lived a hard life and now paid for her mistakes. Kerry and George's relationship very much mirrored a relationship Sue had with a man named Dave, who was a convicted murderer and the reason Kerry was put into foster home. He had stabbed her mother, screaming that he was Freddy Krueger and he was going to cut off their tits and vaginas, chop them up and put them in the fridge. He was a man who had been in prison with the Crays. They even received a Christmas card from Reggie Cray. 
who would beat the hell out of Sue, but he was also the love of her life. As a kid, witnessing the beatings, Kerry would think you can go through, a, through that a million times, but once would be enough for me, and she ended up doing exactly the same thing. She told her mother years later, I get it. These men groom you. It's so easy for people on the outside to say, why don't you just leave? But it's not that simple. Dave died when he was hit by a car and that's when Kerry's mother really hit rock bottom. She would sit in her chair and tell Kerry, that's it. I want to die. I want to be dead. I've got nothing, nothing here for me. Kerry would be filled with dread thinking, what about me? Was she really going to kill herself and leave her there all alone? Her mother was so very damaged by Dave and what he had put her through that she understood how Kerry felt about George. She understood the mixed emotions Kerry was feeling about his death. She had been through exactly the same thing. She was her rock at the time. All her life, Kerry had been drawn to controlling men, but she knew Ryan was different from the moment she met him. He proposed to her one night when they were on holidays in Spain for her 40th birthday. She was ecstatic. If life has taught Kerry anything, it is that she is a survivor. Everything she's been through has helped her become the strong, happy, healthy person she is today. It's taken a lot of work for her to really love herself. Throughout her life, she felt she deserved the pain and the chaos she received. She thought violence and abuse was normal, so she never questioned if she deserved better. But she did deserve better. It took every ounce of strength she had to walk away from George, but she did it. It was never easy. Surviving the hell he put her through had been the hardest thing she ever went through, but she is still standing and finally free. She encourages anyone going through something similar to know they are not alone, to not give up. There is always a way out. All right, so that is the end of this week's episode. How did you feel about being on your first episode of a podcast ever? That was a roller coaster. Yeah, it really sure. was. Um, did, were you expecting that uh, this man was going to be dead? No, I wasn't. I was. Yeah. I was so engrossed in the story that when you said that, I was like looking around, like, what? What happened? Wait, what? Yeah, I know. Um, wild. Uh, I was saying to you like that was how. Um, I didn't really know she'd been in an abusive relationship until I heard that he had died and then that's you know when I was like oh like I didn't realise this had been happening to her the last few years Um, so yeah so that was a crazy story and uh, you know like I said at the beginning a good example of like it doesn't matter how famous you are or anything can happen to anyone and I'm just glad you know she got out of it she's doing well now um, there is my landlord just popping out of nowhere to drop my mail outside the door. <laughs> that was funny. Um, so yeah. So, anyways, thanks for uh, thanks for being on the oh, show. Thank you. I'm very honored. We might have you back again, unless all my listeners are complaining how awful you are. Years to get this one done. I know. Yeah, it took long enough, didn't it? Do it again in another two years. I might be back. Yeah, it was weird having a guest. I've never had a guest on here before. Um, so uh, trying to to this balance is on others, but you haven't actually had a guest on yours. So I know. Yeah, I've been yeah, on another one, but haven't sense. done one myself. It's weird when you have to control everything, and then suddenly you have to bring another person into it, and it's like, oh no, I'm responsible. I don't like it. <laughs> At least it's just me. It doesn't matter that much. Yeah. But yeah. So um any plans so you have plans you're going where are you going tomorrow Melbourne Cup Melbourne Cup tomorrow um I have no plans but it is my birthday on Tuesday so 
birthday week slash birthday month. Technically, my birthday weekend fun is happening next weekend. So I might be kind of boring this week. I feel like I'm just going to probably be editing this uh, podcast. Um, So yeah, so I may be boring or, you know, I'll probably just like online shop until I'm broke. As I do. But that's just a normal week. That's nothing to do with it being my birthday. But whatever. We won't get into it. (laughs) Yeah. So anyways. um, Thanks for being on. And everybody else. Thank you for listening. As usual. Once again. uh, If you need to reach out to me. IPV and me. Online. Or at Mangogs. Um, Again. I will have my email. Hopefully up and running. Really soon. And if you need any help. Thehotline.org. And I will see you next time. Say bye. Bye, guys.